Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 3L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. Today, we are honored to have with us Professor Todd Berger, a professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law, also serving as Director of Advocacy Programs. Professor Berger's scholarship is concentrated in the areas of criminal law and procedure, as well as the intersection of trial advocacy and attorney ethics. Graduating classes continually award Professor Berger with the highest of honors, the college's Recipsa Loquitur Award for Outstanding Faculty Member for Service, Scholarship, and Stewardship to the Students. Prior to joining Syracuse, Professor Berger was the founding managing attorney of the Federal Prisoner Reentry Project at Rutgers School of Law Camden. He's also worked as an assistant public defense attorney with the Defender Association of Philadelphia and supervisor in the municipal court and felony waiver units. Finally, he served as lecturer in law at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. Professor Berger earned a bachelor's degree from George Washington University, a Juris Doctor from Temple University School of Law, and an LLM in trial advocacy from Temple University. Professor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Megan. It's uh, great to be here and uh, looking forward to a great conversation. Well, today we're going to talk about court packing, as you know. This conversation comes on the heels of a Capitol Hill press conference in which Eight House Democrats called for H.R. 2584 to move out of committee, and that amends Title 28 of the U.S. Code to allow for 12 associate justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. In essence, that really is all it says. Democrats introduced this bill in April of 2021, and now in July of 2022, the Democrats want to resuscitate that bill that has gone nowhere, remains in committee. And this call follows recent Supreme Court decisions concerning not only Dobbs, which overturned Roe and Casey, but also recent SCOTUS decisions that affect Miranda rights, gun control, and religion. So court packing, the composition of the Supreme Court, it's a conversation that seems to be happening more frequently now from Capitol Hill to law school corridors. Let's start with the basics, Professor. How do you define court packing? Yes, that's a a great question. I, I think you can look at it really from the intense political perspective, which is the idea that you would add justices to a court that would essentially uh, be more inclined to side with the views of one particular political party. You know, if you think back to sort of the court packing case that most students are probably familiar with, maybe even from high school history, right? It's FDR and his court packing Mm -hmm. plan. And it didn't succeed legislatively, but it may have succeeded historically, created some historians see it to switch a nine that saved time you know, and a justice changed their their view and, and began to sort of not strike down the New Deal legislation FDR proposed. I think when people think of the phrase court packing, there's this idea that it's one party attempting to try and accomplish something that serves their political ends. I think there are, and we can talk about it throughout the podcast, there are ways to think of court packing that not as a pejorative way but a way that the composition of the court can be changed to rebalance it in a way that ensures less domination of the court by one particular political party and maybe more sort of fairness and balance in how the court's making its decisions. I wouldn't really call that later part court packing, although it certainly could involve the adding of justices to expand the court beyond its current size of nine. How much of this is just 
sheer luck combined with strategy and not something, as you say, it's, it may not be malicious necessarily, but just sheer luck with the strategy, the political strategy that goes along with it. So it's a combination of both. I mean, so Donald Trump was a you know, one-term president. He had four years and he got three justices on the court. And one of those justices, Neil Gorsuch, you can view as a question of strategy. And it wasn't Donald Trump's strategy, but it was Mitch McConnell's strategy to hold up the nomination process for Merrick Garland. And that resulted in, you know, you don't know who's going to win the election. So I suppose you could say that there's some element of luck in that and who wins in 2016. But that was a strategy that ultimately put the GOP in place to have that particular Supreme Court appointment. But then there's just luck. Scalia dies and that opens up a spot on the court and, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and that opens up a spot on the court. And, you know, in that sense, you're just getting you know, the, the luck of the draw. I mean, Donald Trump got three and he was there for, you know, one term. Jimmy Carter was there for one term and got none. Bill Clinton was there for two terms, eight years, and Bill Clinton got two. So uh, a lot of it really is just kind of the luck of the draw. But some of the process can be manipulated through strategy as well. And that's an aspect of the Supreme Court appointment process that didn't necessarily used to be there. I mean, if you look at kind of who got appointed to the Supreme Court before and the confirmation process, it was really simple. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was almost unanimous in her approval to the Supreme Court. You know, in the 50s, there are Supreme Court justices who had confirmation hearings that lasted a day. Uh, now it's, you know, it's arguably a Supreme Court appointment is the greatest prize in American politics. It might be more important than the presidency. And so it's lent itself to all kinds of manipulation where possible. And so the, the current composition of the court is certainly a question of luck, but it's also a question of strategy sometimes too. And you haven't seen that in the past. So I think one of the first times in, in modern times that we heard about it was in 2019 specifically um, when Democrat candidate for president, now Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, revived the idea. Many were calling it radical at that moment during a debate. When President now President Biden was asked about it, he said, well, if I become president, I'll gather scholars to take a look at it. He signed an executive order in April of 2021 to examine whether changes need to be made to the Supreme Court. And that report was released in December that, that of 2021. And essentially just said, well, we're, we're here, we're presenting both sides. It takes, literally, it says no, no position on strength or validity of any argument did the commission in this report help clarify anything for you, for those in the academic circles? And I guess within that too, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? So it's a really interesting question. So, you know, Joe Biden, who is an institutionalist, right, had been in the Senate most of his adult life, had chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee, has sort of long stated and been on the record against the idea of Supreme Court reform or adding judges or court packing or whatever you want to call it. He at one point called it a boneheaded idea, but there was a tremendous amount of pressure that he was facing during the campaign from progressives within his own party to do something about the, the current construction of the Supreme Court. And that, that occurred for a couple of reasons. I mean, it occurred because of the Gorsuch appointment, right? The Democrats view as having been stolen from them, right? Amy Comey Barrett was ultimately sort of appointed to the court at a time when 
already millions of Americans had voted. She had the confirmation hearing that took place almost two weeks after the vote. And we could talk about it a little bit more later on if you'd like, but the expanding use of the shadow docket, right? The, the way in which the shadow docket worked was, you know, these justices taking cases, more and more cases from the shadow docket, you know, in a much quicker process, much more truncated process than they ever had before. And they were significant cases with significant impact that they had been been taking. And there was this point where the progressives started demanding change. So what do you do if you're Joe Biden? Right On the one hand, you've been opposed to the idea of reforming the court. At the same time, people within your party are, are irate and you have to do something. And so what he came up with is the classic Washington solution, which is let me appoint a blue ribbon committee to, to study it. And that seemed to work for a period of time. I think what's really interesting about that committee is unlike other presidential committees, it was specifically tasked not with making concrete recommendations. It was told, evaluate the historic role of the Supreme Court in American history, and then evaluate potential court reforms and say, what are the sort of positive aspects of those court reforms and what are the potential negative aspects of those court reforms, and never uh, ultimately coming up with a, with a solution. And it was structured that way. And if you wanted to structure a committee in a way that would be totally ineffectual, that's probably a good way to do it. You know, it's different than how other presidential uh, commissions have been structured. And somebody had said about that, uh, you know, they compared it to the kind of the idea that like if a if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around, you know, does it make a sound? Well, you know, if you you have a presidential commission and it's not tasked with making specific recommendations, does anybody care? We know the answer to that. You know, the answer is, was no, uh, at least at least until till Dobbs and some more recent Supreme Court decisions. So if you want, we can talk a little bit more about the, the structure of that committee and, and what it looked like, and then we can kind of get into its proposals. Yeah. So, you know, it had 36 people on it. Uh, it had some practitioners, some appellate advocates. It was mostly comprised of law professors, uh, mostly from or associated with Uber elite institutions. It's something like 80% of the committee had some affiliation with Harvard or Yale, either because they, they currently teach there or because they went there. Uh, a commentator had said that the, the commission was essentially a bunch of eggheads on Zoom. Uh, and so, you know, that was basically its, uh, its, its, its structure. They did hold public hearings. They had six public hearings where people uh, provided testimony, including former Attorney General Eric Holder and some other sort of leading lights in, in uh, the legal community provided testimony. And they ended up creating a whole bunch of different, um, evaluating a bunch of different proposals uh, as far as what sort of potential court reforms might look like. So the first thing it addressed was our sort of classic definition of court packing, the idea that you add more judges to the court. One of the arguments for court packing really has to do with sort of what the confirmation process has become to return to our earlier discussion about strategy. You know, the way that Mitch McConnell has sort of blocked the appointment of Merrick Garland to the court with something like nine or 10 months before uh, the election was seen as somewhat norm shattering, right? Nothing like that had kind of ever happened before. And then the way in which, right, that just after Americans had already voted in an election year, Amy Comey Barrett was appointed, uh, was seen as sort of a further, uh, you know, kind of shattering of the norm that you would see in nominating Supreme Court justices. And there's a tremendous amount of confirmation hardball that gets played, you know, in the confirmation process of Supreme Court justices as well as federal judges. And one of the pros, one of the uh, the idea of court pack, right, was let's just add justices, was the idea that 
Well, this other side has sort of shattered the norms. And so let's shatter the norms. Nine has been the norm for a long period of time. And so if the other side has sort of departed from the norms that we use to appoint Supreme Court justices, we should as well. And then there's an argument that if Republicans know Democrats have this other thing in their back pocket in the future, right? They're not afraid to reform the court moving forward, that Republicans will be less inclined to sort of play this sort of hardball in the future. So that was one of the pros in a sense. It can kind of keep everybody somewhat more honest. But there are absolutely cons to the idea of court packing. The big discussion that's taking place now is about the legitimacy of the court. It is a super conservative majority. And one of the questions is, does it function as a court that objectively evaluates the law or does it function basically as an adjunct of the Republican Party? You know, if Joe Biden just goes ahead and appoints a bunch of people who align with Joe Biden's views and it functions like a, an adjunct of the Democratic Party and it would appear to further erode the legitimacy of the court, which is sort of one of those issues. Sort of another issue that comes up is that if you look at other countries manipulation of the judiciary sort of frequently a sign of democratic backsliding, whether that be in Venezuela or that be in Poland. And there's sort of a concern that if the Democrats would do that or at, what other, at any point in time, somebody were to pack the court to align more with their political views. It seems like the kind of thing that happens in countries where democracy is, is, is on the ropes. And so I think that there are, you know, the pros and the cons to it. But this is kind of what the committee discussed as far as what court packing looks like. We are speaking with Professor Todd Berger, professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law. We'll be right back. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. Claim your full law student membership for just $25 by visiting ambar.org slash join. And we are back now with Todd Berger, professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law. So another subject area the commission addressed concerns term limits and suggesting term limits for Supreme Court justices, especially because the amount of time they serve as a justice has expanded at least another decade beyond what they used to uh, serve. What do you think, pros and cons of term limits? Sure. So the, the committee noted that there was significant bipartisan support for a term limit of 18 years uh, for appointed Supreme Court justices and appointed federal judges. And in fact, that aligns in a lot of ways with most Western democracies. Almost every Western democracy has a court that has term limits, or if they don't have a court that has term limits, there are age limits, which is something the committee pointed out, right? This may be a consistent way to to treat the, the power of the Supreme Court uh, in a way that 
sort of aligns with what other Western democracies are sort of doing. And this also addresses the idea that presidents have this ability to just through luck or we talked about through manipulation to dominate the court, right? I mean, so, you know, Donald Trump is these three justices. We now appoint justices in their 40s and in their 50s, right? And, you know, and, and they're supposed to serve on this court for, you know, 30 years. Uh, and, and they can ultimately, Donald Trump is there for four years, right? But his legacy in terms of what the country looks like will continue for decades, really because of these three justices, which is why I said it, it might be the most important prize in American politics. It's not even the, the presidency, but it's the Supreme Court. So lessening the dominance of one president over really sort of future generations, I think, is a, is a pro of the idea that there would be term limits. But there are some some cons to it. So major con is that when you are appointed to the, the federal bench, you have a lifetime appointment. So I don't know how so much of a con it is, but it, how practical it is, I think, is a question because you'd have to amend the Constitution to be able to to implement that, right, the term limit proposal. The other idea is it's not clear how term limits necessarily align with the idea of judicial independence. You know, part of the reason you have the lifetime appointment is because you're there for life. You don't have to worry about the consequences of what will happen if you render a particular decision to you or your job, which you might have to worry about uh, in terms of term limits. I mean, you could think of a justice kind of getting to the end of the term and thinking, what am I going to do afterwards? And how might this decision ultimately impact my ability to do that? So, you know, there, there's real questions about, you know, the framers in their, you know, their, their infinite wisdom believe that these lifetime appointments created judicial independence. Now, the framers also didn't have people who lived forever, uh, like it happens today. But, uh, you know, there are those questions about whether or not these term limits will, will negatively impact judicial independence. And that's significant as well. I think the commission also uh, discussed many alternatives some of which uh, had been new to me. They went through numerous possibilities, rotating justices, instituting uh, a panel-like structure, limiting the power uh, over, for instance, statutory legislation, elevation of transparency to include code of conduct, video transmissions. They Do they look more tempting now? Do any stand out as potentially more relevant or even doable? especially now. They all have problems. I mean, that's, you know, kind of in a sense where the, the committee sort of threw up its, threw up its hands. It, but, it, it, you know, it wasn't tasked with making recommendations and saying which is the most likely. But, you know, there are significant practical issues with almost all of them, sometimes legal issues. So let's take the, the rotating justice piece of it, right? So, you know, this is something that Pete Buttigieg had talked about, Bernie Sanders had talked about it, and there's different formulations of it. But one of the ideas of the rotating justices are that you'd have this group of federal judges. And, and under Article 3, the president doesn't appoint people to a particular, you know, you get lifetime appointment, I should say, when you are a federal judge, regardless of whether you're Article 3, you know, a Supreme Court justice or an appellate judge. So the idea essentially would be that you'd have this group of judges who had this lifetime appointments, but they would be able to sort of rotate out, right, from uh, the circuit court to the Supreme Court, to circuit court to the Supreme Court again, which is much the way that you have panels constructed at the appellate court level. They're just sort of randomly constructed panels in which judges rotate in and out. So one of the advantages of that is, of course, that you know, there's 180 appellate judges and 
you know, it would it would significantly lessen the ability of any one president to dominate the court when you have 180 appellate judges appointed by all different presidents sort of rotating in and out. You know, one issue with it is that you don't know, like, you know, you could get a crazy panel one day, right? Crazy from the left or crazy from the right. And that becomes sort of the law of the land. So there's no guarantee that you would be getting panels that would be sort of objective or moderate. You know, you could end up with just some randomly extreme results, which people wouldn't be happy about. The biggest issue with it, though, right, is that under Article 2, which controls the executive branch, the president has the sole authority to nominate people to the Supreme Court. So it's not clear exactly how you'd rotate the judges in and out. The president would have to presumably appoint all of the judges who ultimately sit on the the Supreme Court uh, under Article 2. So the ability to rotate judges in and out in that regard has some practical constitutional concerns as well that may require a constitutional amendment, you know, to go along with it. There have been ideas floated by some that each president should get to appoint a certain number of Supreme Court justices, say two. So this is a popular idea. Every president gets to appoint two Supreme Court justices and you just you just appoint away. And those judges have lifetime appointments. Everyone gets two in the beginning of their term. Obviously someone dies or retires or something, you can fill it. This would just result in the court expanding in size. But of course, people would die, people would retire. So some predictions are that if you did that, the court would have even numbers of judges at different times, which means lower court decisions would stand if the court split. But you'd also end up with a situation where, judge, you know, as judges retired, there's died, there's a belief that it would probably end up around 15, give or take here or there. Um, and so that would kind of be what the, the court would look like. Now, you know, that would presumably lessen the power of any one president to dominate what the court looks like because every president would get those appointments. But it doesn't mean we wouldn't take gamesmanship out of the confirmation process because, of course, a party could just refuse to hold hearings on the president's nominations, which would be an issue. And then the other thing is there's, there's an argument that that increases the intense politicalization of uh, the Supreme Court process. If you think about it now, you know, you don't know that any one president gets to appoint anybody. So it's an issue in presidential elections, but not a concrete issue because you don't know that you're ever going to get to make those appointments. If every president got to appoint two, it may really increase how important the Supreme Court was in these elections because in a given time, you know you get two appointments and you know that that could ultimately make a difference based on the composition of that court. So it would increase the political nature of the, the appointments and the hardball nature of them as well. So, you know, some pros and some cons with that. But the beauty of that approach is at least it doesn't require a constitutional amendment. The other piece I would add to it too, kind of relating to term limits somewhat and, and can, it's kind of a combination of term limits and rotating off is that judges could be appointed for to the Supreme Court for 18 year terms. And then afterwards, they would be given senior status, which would mean that they would still have their lifetime appointment, but wouldn't be called upon to, you know, would only hear cases when called upon. It's not clear that that would be constitutional, right? Is is that sort of consistent with lifetime appointment? If you sit on the court for 18 years and then you automatically get senior status, would that be challenged? So that's a version of term limits that would result in judges rotating on and off, right? Uh, but maybe maybe constitutional or maybe not. So they all have their their underlying issues here or there. Let's talk about uh, continue to talk about the alternative changes to the Supreme Court. One of them. One of the suggestions is the limitation of power and what is called jurisdiction stripping. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? This was something that's 
it's come up and uh, brought before the commission. It was also recently after Dobbs something that a group of Democratic congresspersons had suggested and, and had called for the court specifically to be stripped of jurisdiction to hear questions relating to reproductive rights. So Article 1 gives Congress the power. There's only one court created with original jurisdiction, right, which is the Supreme Court of the United States. And other than that, Congress has the power to create uh, Article 1, which are lower lower federal courts. Uh, and implicit in Congress's power to create federal courts is the idea that Congress can restrict the jurisdiction of those courts to hear cases. And in the Constitution itself, the Supreme Court is only given original jurisdiction over a certain number of limited matters. It can hear you know, disputes involving ambassadors and uh, cases in which the states sue each other. But it's, it's overall uh, fairly limited in terms of the jurisdiction that it has. And over time, Congress has gradually expanded the jurisdiction of the court through statute. So one of the arguments is that the Supreme Court is essentially occupied too large a role in American life. One of the things I think that's really interesting is uh, if you look at the, the section of the Constitution that creates the legislative branch, you know, it's, it's only like 3,000 words. If you look at the section that creates the executive branch, it's 1,000 words. If you look at the section that creates the Supreme Court, it's 375 words. And really interestingly, the, the S in Supreme Court is not even capitalized. Uh, the first meeting of the Supreme Court, half the justices didn't show up and it had to adjourn. Uh, so it was this idea was it was never intended to occupy the central role that it has in American life. And in fact, throughout most of, sort of early American history, the Supreme Court rarely overruled Congress. Believe it or not, Dred Scott decided in the 1870s was only the second time that Congress had uh, ever declared a federal statute invalid. And so the court's role in, the, in American life had gradually expanded significantly during the 20th century. And the argument is that that is not exactly what the framers intended. It is in a lot of ways become an uber legislation, right? It's, it's a law gets passed and then the justices get to decide whether they like it or not. Uh, and, you know, ultimately what's created through the most direct democratic process only gets to stand if the Supreme Court says uh, that it likes it. And, and that, just probably not the deference that it looks like the framers wanted to see the court show to the legislative process. And, and so that's become a significant issue. The court's use of the shadow docket, I think, has significantly increased calls for uh, reform. You know, the, the court continues to take cases without the benefit of full briefing or oral argument and then make decisions that are unsigned, oftentimes without much explanation, which appears to be a power grab. And I think what's also really interesting is the undemocratic, what some of us is the undemocratic nature of the Supreme Court. It's three of the justices the three Trump justices were appointed by someone who didn't win the popular vote. And five of the justices were appointed by, were confirmed by senators who represented a minority of the country. And this appears to sort of be a kind of an undemocratic way in which the, the court operates and sort of what some would say looks like a world in which we live under minority rule. And so the argument has been, well, let's strip the court of its jurisdiction. Uh, it was not intended to sort of have this outsized role in American life. And so that's been an argument that's been been put forth in favor of jurisdiction stripping. The counter argument to it is that while we certainly know that Congress has the authority on some level to control jurisdiction, it kind of exists in the abstract. We don't know what jurisdiction stripping would look like 
or whether how the court would interpret statutes to strip jurisdiction. Would the court say that those statutes themselves were constitutional? You know, it's uh, it's sort of a, a, a difficult process to see what the end result would be. And so that's sort of one of the drawbacks to it is, you know, you think this might work, but you can't really see all of the problems with it in place before you put it, you know, before you were to start to strip the courts of jurisdiction. I think the hard part for me is that it just is back and forth as a political issue. Many and many of these conversations are are being had right now because there's outrage over a number of decisions. But it feels as though you change things now and much like the filibuster, it's just going to come back to haunt you again later. And if you're a Republican, you're arguing that Senator Schumer started this back with an 18-month sort of a, what did he say? He said, uh, you've... I'm not going to George H to George W. Bush. He said, I'm not going to move forward in the confirmation process if it's within 18 months. And then you've got Senator McConnell putting forth similar rules. And then it just seems as though for me, a lot of the root of the politics is in that nomination process and the confirmation process and the, the politicization of all of that. And Way back in the back of the commission report, I think it was Appendix C, there was a witness who had previously served on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I thought a lot of those changes were more probably beneficial to the process in terms of mandating with the next number of days, you proceed with this, and 21 days later, you do this, and 10 days later, you do that. And so you take out some of that, Mm -hmm. to me, the political manipulation. What do you think about that confirmation process, that nomination process? How much of a role does that play? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it makes a lot of sense, right? And it would, you know, because one of the things that uh, Mitch McConnell had said, well, I, you know, to justify Amy Comey Barrett's nomination, right, was uh, at the time that I said we wouldn't confirm the Obama nomination, right? It was something like, well, there was a president of one party and the Senate of another, right? And then, you know, to Amy Comey Barrett, he said, well, it's a different situation now. The president and the senator of the same party. It's like, you know, and the weather might have been a little bit different on the day you said one thing and the day you said the other thing. But it's not clear why that would make much of a difference at all. And so each side kind of has been involved in manipulating the process themselves. So I think it makes sense to streamline the process and impose rules that everyone has to play by. Right? Uh, and I think that ultimately can build trust in a lot of ways. Right? When the Democrats say one thing and then they do another. Republicans say one thing and do another. It just erodes public confidence and trust in the Senate No, and in politicians, right? which, believe it or not, I guess it's theoretically possible to go lower, right? Like, nobody thinks that what you say is a serious thing. You'll just look for some ridiculous reason to kind of change it later on. So I, I think that, that those kinds of reforms make sense. And, and I think the confirmation process as a whole could be reformed. I mean, arguably, you could get rid of it, right? I mean – you know, I mean, you can't get rid of it legally because they have to be sort of nominated by the president and then confirmed with advice and consent of the Senate. But maybe you could eliminate the stupid hearings, right? Nobody thinks that those hearings are useful. One of the things that the senators say to the respective judicial nominees, whether, you know, the Supreme Court nominees or otherwise is, well, this is the one time that you'll be held to account to the American people and they'll be able to ask you questions, you know, before through their representatives before you go up to the court. And then they're all coached, Democrat or Republican, to say nothing, right? Uh, Or to be so vague in the things that they say that, you know, Susan Collins can think Brett Kavanaugh told her, right, that he would, he wouldn't overturn Roe versus Wade or whatever. And, uh, 
you know, the, the process itself, I think, erodes public trust because it's supposed to be people answering questions honestly, and they don't, right? They just answer questions in these highly technical and political ways, and it makes it look useless. And I think ultimately, you know, creating this useless political process is something that the American people look at and say, you know, this is this is little value. This is not kind of the a functioning function government and the way to so I think eliminating that process, which takes up time and is cumbersome and adds very little, might ultimately be a more streamlined, better approach in a way that would lend itself to less of these kind of later arguments, right? The arguments that you lied or, you know, you should be impeached because you lied kind of thing. Um, and would just make the process a lot cleaner. So my final question today, like, do, do you feel as if the commission we're meeting right now following the Supreme Court decisions that came out this summer of 2022, do you think that the, its guidance might be different now following those decisions? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. So Nancy Gertner, who uh, was a, was one of the few non-academics on the committee, uh, who's a federal judge, has come out publicly and said, I told you so, right? She believed that the, the committee uh, should ultimately propose a changes in the composition of the court. And I think many other people on the committee might feel that way as well. I mean, it's hard to know exactly, but although I mean, people probably should have seen this coming, right? I mean, I don't think they've been under illusions as opposed like what this court was necessarily going to do, but the the breadth of what it's done and the quickness with which what it's done may change some opinions. I mean, you know, we know Roberts would have voted right, in, in favor of upholding the Mississippi legislation. But he said, you know, we should do it incrementally, right? We didn't have to overturn Roe with this, right? They went and they, they, they sort of made this decision to overturn Roe in a, in a kind of a bold step, right, in less of an incremental way. The decisions have restricted the Biden administration's ability, any administration's ability to regulate carbon emissions through EPA regulations. They struck down New York's concealed carry laws. They've rendered some decisions that have um, been controversial in the world of criminal defense. Uh, and many of their important decisions involving things like gerrymandering or even the Texas case that came up before Dobbs involving reproductive rights have been done through the shadow docket. You know, and I, I think they... There may be a difference of opinion in what the committee should do now. Uh, I think Gertner said, and she kind of put it well, you know, you would think of the court as like this place of rational debate. And people are thinking through problems. They're not always going to agree, but they're trying to use the law and engage in objective analysis to reach some sort of correct conclusion. But now it kind of feels like it's just we have the power, so let's just do the things we want. And I think as long as that perception is there, the more agitation you're going to have, not just on the political left, but really among scholars and commentators and court watchers, sort of change the composition of the court. Because it's hard to imagine that people will want a court to continue to exist that appears to be something that is, you know, at least in people's perception, is motivated to implement the designs of a particular political point of view, which is, a, you know, yesterday. Kagan had said that. She said, you know, publicly, right? We have to make sure we're not just implementing public policy, but we're following the law. I think that as that perception continues to exist, there'll be more and more of a desire to sort of see the court reformed. Professor Todd Berger, professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Megan. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.